0: Okay, so everybody, this is, um, you know, podcast number three with Charlie, and I apologize if anybody's been waiting. There have been some technical problems, and we're getting better every week, but there still seems to have been a problem with me starting this time. I've already talked to you for a while. Just imagine that. Um, And uh, I already said, unfortunately, everything important, Uh, so now I'm going to move on. Uh, Ha ha. Now I want to start now I'm going to repeat some of what I said before though it's kind of unscripted more or less this Um, this this podcast series as a whole is now has the title uh, which has mutated a few times the title of to hell and back and the idea of this is one idea the whole thing which is that every one of us uh, on earth experiences hell in so many different forms, so many different times in our lives. And by hell, I don't just mean sort of lightweight difficulties. I'm really talking about, you know, the worst moments of, of our lives. Sometimes those are extremely extended moments. But this is the hell of grief that's nearly unbearable or illness, uh, the hell of, of injuries that are terrible and catastrophes like we heard about with uh, the last two weeks uh, with a, our colleague in Puerto Rico with the hurricane the the hell of going through depression um, and anxiety the hell of having a psychosis and the hell of of addiction the hell of being a family member or or somebody who loves anybody going through any of these things the hell of being um, feeling very empty in life and lonely and having no purpose or having really painful relationships that don't seem to be able to be changed and um... that you can't get into or can't get out of and same with work environments for some people um, there's parenting hell when you just can't make things happen the way you have in your mind as a parent and keep falling into uh, habits that don't work very well um, the pain of estrangement when someone from your family basically uh, finds it necessary to stay away from you um, and how awful that can be and the pain the pain of being in abusive relationships that are hard to get out of so In other words it's just nobody escapes it entirely some people have a lot more than others unfortunately Um, and when I'm talking about this kind of difficulty in life uh, I'm really talking about when things are terrible when they're nearly unbearable uh, when someone feels trapped in their situation or in their nervous system uh, they feel some whatever they're in may, may, even if it's not gonna last forever it might even just be a shorter time but it feels like it's never gonna end and it's overwhelming it's way past what you think you can usually cope with and you feel helpless so the hurricane in Puerto Rico was an example of that where the people there including the person we spoke to last uh, two times Domingo Uh, prepared for hurricane because they've been through lots of hurricanes they knew everything to do but then what came along was not an ordinary hurricane it was a it was like the hurricane of the century which should be an entirely different category it was just a devastating destructive thing and actually I just heard today that Puerto Rico still has only 50 percent power that the death toll is climbing of course as people find more and more people and it's just still a very very difficult situation Um, now the hell to one person is not the same as hell to another person so we're not just talking about external factors that are hell I mean some people experience uh, a terrible experience in a circumstance where somebody else actually doesn't I'm remembering uh, not a hurricane but we had a big storm up here in Western Massachusetts and in the in the Northeast um some years ago where we lost our power for five days that's probably the longest we've lost our power and it felt like a long time oh my god compared to puerto rico it was a drop in the bucket and um um and for me and one of my sons it wasn't convenient but we kind of turned it into what we felt like was a camping trip like, you know, we may have had fires in the fireplace, and we got stuff, and we ate, and we even cooked things there and, you know, slept there. And it was kind of like uh, we turned it into that because we've done a lot of that. And But for my wife and my other son, it was hell. They just couldn't – it was really – nothing worked. And uh, they ended up finding somebody's house to go to that had still had power. Um, that's a mini example of what I mean, but it, it, I just want to make the point that we're talking about an internal experience here. Um, I want to refer back to, uh, you know, a brief story about uh, where the term "hell" really, um, in this form, came into my vocabulary, because. Uh, As uh, many of you know listening but I can't assume everybody does and uh, it's still a useful context to go over is that uh, when she was 19 years old Marsha Linehan who developed dialectical behavior therapy as as I'll come to as a way to help people get out of hell um, was in a hospital and within it for a long time and for psychiatric problems uh, symptoms and a lot of emotional suffering and uh, just unbearable and she just kept having to, to doing things that were in, designed to try to distract her mind or to or to get out of it and it resulted in her being hospitalized for some time and and after going through a lot and being there long enough to know that there was no simple way out it just kept happening and being there long enough to find out that you know no one had the cure no one knew exactly what to do though as she pointed out when she came out with this story a few years ago the people who helped her the most were the ones that admitted they had nothing that they really didn't know how to help her yet but they were very kind to her but when she was in that situation at one point and she was in a uh, uh, isolation room by herself um, she had the thought uh, that if she ever were to get out of hell if she could ever find a way out of the hell that she was in she would spend her life going back in and getting other people like her out of hell and that sort of laid the whole that's like the origin story of dialectical behavior therapy or DBT and um, and it became her mission, and it's been her mission, uh, continues to be her mission all these years later because, uh, gosh, that was probably uh, more than 50 years ago. Um, and in therapy, in DBT, but not only DBT, I think this makes sense generically and maybe in life in general when people are in hell, the way to help somebody in hell requires two steps. You know, you might say that sounds rather simple. It's only two steps one step is you have to be able to get into hell with somebody so that, you know, you can kind of see hell from their point of view. You kind of as much as much as possible, you get the inside story and you listen carefully and you let yourself feel the things that they're probably feeling and you communicate that and see if they, if they think that you get it. And more and more, that means uh, getting into hell with, with that person, and then you need to start to envision how is this person going to get out because they may be so demoralized or just not have some of the skills or some of the ideas or some of the capacities to make it. So then you have to think of how am I going to get this person out of hell? I mean, that defines the therapy, how to get into hell with somebody, which is really kind of like a way of uh, working your way in with your mind, with discussion, with reading with thinking with letting it in Uh, and sometimes that feels pretty awful and then it's uh, how do you get out which is what kind of tools do you have to help people get out because unfortunately usually if you just convey that you understand it that is definitely helpful It's a step in the right direction but the person usually needs more than that in order to get out and build a life um so again the the overarching point of this podcast is to uh, learn about think about discuss uh, go into different versions of hell in life Um, sometimes with discussions with people sometimes just me talking and then hope to come uh, across and share tools for people to get to get out or to get others out and strategies Um, so let me say something about DBT because uh, that's where i'm moving today i'm today i don't have a guest unless i were to say i'm just one part of myself is talking to another part of myself (laughs) that's kind of a fake answer but uh, it is just me today and uh and i do want to bring now you into what i want to talk about uh explore teach about today DBT at its core, at the center of DBT, it's now become perfectly clear after years of research that what helps people, and it definitely does help people, are skills, are the skills that are taught. They're taught from a manual that you can buy, you know, a Marshall Enhance Skills Training Manual, and other people have put these skills out in other forms. But at the center are the skills. It's sort of like uh, there's other parts of DBT, but it's kind of like if you were to By a hamburger, the skills are like the meat patty in the middle. Without it, it's hard to know uh, what would happen. Uh, Chances are it wouldn't be as helpful. And now if you look at the skills, there's a lot of them. They're divided uh, with adults. Uh, The skills for adults are divided into four categories, and they're called four modules. And at the center of the skills is one of those modules it's called the core mindfulness skills and they're called the core mindfulness skills because uh, they're considered to be at the core of all of the other skills they are prerequisites some of them the the idea in uh, mindfulness skills and specific particular mindfulness skills is that uh, you really need these to get started and to move in there there is mindfulness of relationships when you're working on relationship skills and mindfulness of emotions etc at now the next point, and what leads us to today's dis- more discussion, is that at the center of the core mindfulness skills, you might say at the core of the core is the skill of observing. The skill of observing. Not a very, you know, it's, n- it's not a big knockout to just say that since we've all been observing all of our lives, or at least we think we have, though. I think as I explain it, you'll see this is a particular kind of observing that we actually probably don't do most of the time in a pure form um, so the idea here is that this is a this is as, as simple as this sounds this is a very powerful kind of uh, skill uh, kind of activity a huge thing um, and so um, let me go on and say you know like uh, today I want to talk more about who, what is observing and how would you use it and how would you use it in hell uh... of different kinds so let me give you an example just to put it all together first before i unpack it when after marshall Linehan developed dbt i i then learned about it i went to seattle where she was and i learned directly from her about it this was the late 1980s and then i developed an inpatient program in white plains new york a long-term treatment program based entirely on DBT and uh, and in that program we had 18 patients at any given time and uh, they almost all of them had borderline personality disorder as a diagnosis but more descriptively they were people that were suffering a lot they were in the hell of their own emotions that they had trouble controlling um, and that were often easily triggered and hard to manage so at one point just one little brief moment in that whole many years of work there there was a 19 year old woman who was in her own version of hell and she was she was having a family therapy meeting coming up later in the day which she was terrified about what could happen in that meeting who would say what to whom and she was pacing noticeably up and down the hallway and she was wanting to die and she was wanting to and she was dying to cut herself because she thought that would provide some uh, emotional relief but she also was fighting that she had made commitments to try not to do that and to head help of of our whole program to work on this um, so a nurse went up and talked to her and got a sort of a good dose of how thoroughly terrified this woman was and how she just couldn't get out of thinking about the family meeting and how terrible it was And so the nurse said, hey, why don't you and I take a little walk outside? The patient said, yeah, but it's raining out there. She said, I know, it's just water. Okay, let's go outside and see what it's like. Well, the patient followed her, and they went outside. And then she said, they they stood in the rain, and the nurse said, let's just look up at the sky. Yeah, but we're going to get rain all over our face. Yeah, I know. Let's just notice that. Just notice the rain. Let's both of us. Let's just be like we're out on a trip in nature and it's really raining and we're just looking up at the sky and seeing how much rain's coming down and we're feeling it hitting on our forehead and our cheeks and our our whole face and then we're feeling it just dripping down. Yeah, but we're going to get really wet. Our clothes are going to go, I know, I know, it's sort of a pain. But you know what? I mean, let's just do this. Let's just notice the rain falling on our face. Let ourselves totally notice it because it's going to be hard not to, right? So they did that. And and within a very short time, the patient was uh, sort of smiling and then kidding with the nurse about, getting totally soaked, and now she was going to have to go in and uh, and, and uh, get different clothes on before her family meeting and she and uh, nurse said well you, but at least you won't have to take a shower and they're kidding with each other and so they went through that and the and the patient reported the next morning in one of our group meetings that for the first time in her life that she could remember she had a terrible feeling and once she figured out what to do for a while the feeling changed and it was like a revolution for her. It was like a new discovery. It was like, you know, if, if you're blind and, and deaf and you, and you discover for the first time, like Helen Keller, uh, there is such a thing as a letter or a word. I mean, she was like, oh, my God. It came and it went. And meanwhile, what allowed that to happen was that they went outside and had this, and they totally focused on one thing. And I would say they used the skill of observing. They used the skill of observing the sensation of rain coming down and the sound of rain and the feel of rain and getting wet and everything like that, and they did it together, and it, it really allowed her to, uh, to um, shift her emotions. It was possible to let emotions come and go. So it's that kind of thing that I mean, and we're going to unpack it much further than that. Um, let me give you a different kind of example just from my own life, Um, quite strangely, I had a dentist as a little kid. Maybe I was 9 or 10 years old, and his name was Dr. Tinkle. Now, you might have thought he should have been a urologist or something like that, but he actually was a a dentist and a dentist for children. So it was a funny name. Uh, And and when I saw him, I at one point had to have a couple of painful things done, like uh, drilling in my teeth. And I I've always hated that stuff I don't I don't remember if I had had it done already by then but I was terrified of that I was afraid of I, I didn't like that didn't like the sound of a drill I just, eh, the whole thing and so but dr. Tinkle didn't use novocaine with kids he used hypnosis so there I was and he hypnotized me or at least he thought he did and and I pretended like he did at least I didn't know if I was hypnotized I went through the counting from 1 to 10 and I was looking at these silver spots and he was saying things to me about getting heavier and, you know, all the good stuff he induced me into, uh, supposedly hypnosis. And I didn't know if I actually was hypnotized or if I was just being obedient, afraid to act like I wasn't hypnotized. And so then when he said, okay, I'm going to drill now and you're going to feel pain, but it's not going to bother you. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble now, because uh, <laughs> if I'm faking it, this is going to be terrible. And I still didn't say anything to him. And then he drilled, and guess what? I felt pain, and it didn't bother me. Very rare for me. I'm a baby when it comes to pain. And uh, it was amazing, actually, to have him do that. And, the, and it happened uh, it was two or three more times in my childhood with him before we moved to somewhere else and got a dentist with a more normal name, um, but but it, it struck me that what was special about that was that he instructed me to observe the pain, not to look away from it or think away from it, not to block it, not to think, oh my God, I'm going to be in pain. Give me a ton of Novocaine. No, he just said, okay, there's going to be pain. And he was kind of like saying, observe it, notice the pain. And notice that it doesn't need to be a catastrophe, which I'm not sure I even think now. But it really was true. And hypnosis, when people do hypnosis for chronic pain, it's the same idea. You notice it. You study it. You 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 track your pain, and uh, it was developed into a treatment with mindfulness for uh, of, of chronic pain and anxiety with John Cabot Sin, as many of you know that he published uh, in a book uh, in, the, I think, the 80s called Full Catastrophe Living. And it was really about how you bring your attention and you, you observe your pain rather than trying to block it out. And that feels acutely painful. But there's something about the process of just observing what's there um, that then makes it possible to have that come and have it go as it should, uh, or it makes it possible for it to you to become aware of, okay, it's not going to kill me, uh, which might be some of your fantasy. Because going into a dentist, I mean, don't you think like I think like, even before I'm in there, like, please, God, don't have him drill today. No, don't do that. No, this is terrible. I don't know if I'll get through this. And then I remember whatever was the worst dental procedure I ever had, and that's the one I'm going to have today. And it really isn't true. I mean it's almost never true in fact it is never true it can't be the same one as before and if you just observe what's there and take what's there you realize that what creates hell dent, dental hell sometimes dental hell is because it's just dental hell I mean I, I've had my share sometimes dental hell is internal in the mind dental hell added on top of pain that if it weren't for how we think about it it wouldn't be as hellish so that's one of the main ideas about why observing can help in hell I've given you two examples and they're different kinds Uh, I wonder if you noticed that example was if you're in hell the hell of pain you bring your attention you observe exactly what's going on with the pain you observe the pain you don't try to distract from it in the other one when the nurse helped that 19 year old woman who was terrified about her family meeting they used mindfulness of rain coming down on their faces and their bodies which was a distraction from the thing she was afraid of so notice these are both uses of the powerful skill Of observing and it's powerful if you do it if you enter into it and do it 100% it really can be powerful you can really transform yourself Um, but often we don't do 100% because we're also still terrified and we're still saying things to ourselves we're still thinking how terrible something is and the more we tell ourselves it's terrible the more it is terrible so you get the point okay so observing is just a summary statement is something very pure it's observing exactly what it is that's coming into your sensory awareness. Pay attention to that. Just it's, some, it's where you purely attend to something coming through you, one of your five senses that's cluing you into what's happening in reality in the world around you. In reality, because we always add on to reality in our own minds. The five senses are our way they are as far as most of us know our only way of making contact with reality around us and then there's more sensory capacities inside us so that we can sense our own emotions our own physiology our own proprioception our own thoughts Um, we have our own internal feelings and so if you add all this up observing is purely to pay attention to what's coming through the five senses from outside, and the sensory awareness from inside, and that is what's coming into the mind, and then you start to notice that um, almost instantaneously the mind creates what I'll call add-ons. You know, you 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 have a certain thing happen, uh, and then there's a, there's an add-on somebody says something a little critical and that's a little painful and what you add on like I did with the dentist is oh my god I'm being criticized again and it's it can feel terrible because there is a history of criticism and it isn't what's happening now but it but it might but it might as well be as as in the eyes of the observer you know and then there are cravings you know it's natural when you have addictions and you're trying to stop that you will have cravings but the cravings you need i mean you can just observe your cravings just observe cravings and people have developed skills for this like surfing having an imagery of surfing on your cravings is something like just observing your cravings and using that as an imagery a metaphor um, but what we you what people with addictions usually do is when they get the cravings uh, it recruits from their brain, from their memory bank, other things about having cravings. It, 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 it produces things from the past when they couldn't stand it to not have drugs. It produces all the memory of having drugs and how it can take the cravings away. You can think, oh, my God, my cravings are terrible now. I have to use. Rather than just purely observe, be with your cravings, right? Right? So there is being in hell. There is being in external reality hell, internal reality hell, and then there is observing being in hell, which can be an add on. You observe being in hell and then you see that you've added something else onto it. You know? I have a cousin that I grew up with. Actually I have eighteen cousins and uh... on my mother's side and when i was growing up in the state of oregon uh... we were pretty close to another family of cousins and one was my age and we went through uh... all of elementary school together kindergarten and everything and we were together a lot and we did a lot of activities together and it was a really good buddy and uh... and that was a long time ago but it's never stopped feeling that way to me it's an uninterrupted sense that even though we long periods go by without contact that actually it's a great relationship and i'm so glad i had it about two years ago i was out in oregon with one of my sons who was going to go to college out there and i was getting him set up out there um and it was turned out it was in the same town as this cousin and while i was there i really didn't have enough time to go see him My my son and i just had all these things planned and then one of my brothers came into town and and said, "Let's all go to dinner." I said, "Okay." So we all left to the project of getting him moved into college, and we went to dinner. When we went to dinner, um, another cousin, the older brother of that cousin, uh, came because my older brother asked him. So he came, and then later he told the the cousin that I was close to. He told him, "Hey, we had dinner with uh, Charlie and and uh, his kids and uh, everything, and 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 then." I uh, I never heard again from that cousin. I wrote him and thanked him because he a couple times helped out my son while he was there, and I didn't hear back from him. And it went on and on. And um, so now I had sort of re- cousin relationship hell in that he was not getting back to me. And that was painful enough, you know, like if you text somebody and they don't get back or you leave a message for somebody they don't get back. It's a certain, you know, painful thing a certain degree of pain depending on the situation but this became bigger and bigger in my mind the longer it went on until I was thinking I'm going to contact his sister who's out in Oregon and I'm gonna find her and talk to her and see what the hell is going on with him because he's not responding to me and um, so this went on quite a while and it built up to a big thing so now I had in my mind and this is how relationships can be even the ones you see every day where there is the actual encounter, and there's the add-on, and hard to keep your mind focused on the actual encounter because the add-on takes a lot more emotional significance. So that's what happened, and I st- I was just in pain, and I was starting to think, what the hell? Why would he do this? You know, he should be he should know enough that I wouldn't leave him out. That isn't how that happened. I didn't even know we were going to dinner, and I wanted to explain. I explained it in emails and stuff, and. No, no answer, no answer. I even went to the point of sending him a present of, since out here in Massachusetts we have maple syrup, and I thought, oh, I'll send him a little bottle of maple syrup with a little card, and I did. And then he emailed me, and then when he emailed me, it turns out he had found all the previous emails, because he said, oh, I was Chuck when I was a kid. He said, Chuck, I'm sorry that you thought there was something wrong. There was never anything wrong. I loved I loved helping your son and I like seeing you and there's no problem at all I just you know I I ended with a certain email like two years ago but now but it's still there and I went and checked it after I got this thing from you and I see you've been contacting me I thought oh shit and all of a sudden there I am back in uh, in reality I left reality for a long time but I thought it was reality so it's just another example of how when you get in hell these are easy examples maybe it sounds like compared to the hell you're thinking of right now or a hell you can imagine but uh, and of course observing doesn't do everything but this is unbelievably helpful and we uh, almost all the time we have add-ons because that's how our brain works all right Um, let me go on helping other people in therapy with observing it begins with observing um, whatever it is that somebody's coming in, and I had, I had people that I worked with today that came in with various situations that they're dealing with that are painful, and, uh, you know, you start out asking the person to describe what they have noticed, what's going on, hey, what's going on, and then you listen, and then you, li- then you ask more, And because if you move too quickly, you, you don't know what you're hearing. So you not only need to just observe yourself which is to observe the story that you hear and observe how it's told and what the state of mind is that the patient's in but you're asking them to observe what their experience was and sometimes you're asking them to separate observing the reality of the experience from the add-ons of the experience so you can say you know what, what was it you you know, tell me what you you. How did that make you feel when you were with so and so? And your patient might say, "Well, I'm just an idiot. I always knew I was an idiot. I don't know why I think sometimes I'm not anymore, but I, I'm just an idiot." And you know when you hear it that they are describing something that they're actually observing, but it's being overtaken by something from their past, something from their judgments, some some assumption that is not actually. The experience of reality. I mean, if they say, "Well, I'm not very good at math," there may be some documented evidence for that. But if they say, "I'm an idiot," and and they clearly are not, then obviously it, it's a huge add-on. And part of the job of therapy is to you know, dissect reality from the add-ons. So somebody says to you, "I, I think I'm unlovable." I just think nobody loves me. And you could say back, I mean, can you observe that you're having the thought that you're unlovable? Are you aware when you think about it, when you notice it, that that's sort of a powerful thought you're having? And the person might say, no, 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 it's really true. It's really true. I'm unlovable. Nobody loves me. really and so and there's nothing lovable about you no nothing at all and and you know there is a um you know it's like something's gotten stuck in that person's head it's like and we've all been there we all are there i mean i'm there i i don't want to go into the details of right now the various distortions that i still have in my mind about things or things that happen that really i don't understand as clearly as i wish um but um you know or let's say this. I, not long ago, somebody was uh, somebody. After I said something, the person was looking down to, in therapy and said, "You don't like me." And I and I said, what, "What did you notice about what I said that makes you think I don't like you?" He says, "Well, you said such and such. I forget what it was exactly." And it is, I, I don't really know. I just know you don't like me. And I said, "Look, when you say that." you're looking away from me and you know you're missing some information when you look away from me when you're saying that I wonder if you can look at me and observe my face and observe me while you say that I don't like you and sort of check it out I mean is this the face is this the sound is this the person who actually seems like they don't like you if you just observe actually oh well now you're putting on a face you're you're faking it So it isn't like this immediately fixes things, but I sort of keep using this as a way to move forward in situations like that. I I think uh, I know from my own experience how much we look away from reality once we get caught up in an idea. Um, For instance, I I know there's a lot of examples here. I hope they're useful to you. for example, when my kids were younger, they played hockey, ice hockey. And uh, God, I, I never skated even. And I went to more ice skating rinks than I ever imagined I could and um, watched practices and games and so on. And here's what would happen. It's unbelievable, because I would read about hockey parents and how they would practically kill each other or kill the ref, or in fact, they have sometimes. And of course, I thought, well, I'm not like that. but there I was at a hockey game and we're playing another team that has a reputation in the league of playing dirty and the refs being on their side because it was their home rink and their parents are cheering in a way that sounded to me like they're cheering for their players to be dirty like that that was a victory if their players hurt one of our players and so I'm watching and I'm thinking oh my god think of these parents and so there was the reality of who these parents were I could look over and see them and hear them and actually if I listened carefully they didn't sound that much different than the parents on our side but then we actually all, it was a morning game and we went to the International House of Pancakes our team did afterwards and turns out their team did too and the parent I was sitting at a table with some of our parents right next to the parents at their table and I sort of overheard their conversations and they were they were just like us of course (laughs) big surprise it's amazing that it has to be a big surprise that how easily and automatically the brain can take an actual experience of reality like seeing other parents and hearing them and then turn it into something like that where they're the enemy and they're the bad guys and they and they have negative ideas that we don't have it's like amazing you know and then I was talking to some of them and it's sort of like you know they had the same concerns that all of us did of course but you know what I mean. Um, let me just think. Um, I want to say something about parenting um, because these kind of problems come up uh, with raising children, right? When we get to a week where we're really talking about hellish experiences of parenting and how to get out of that, uh, I think, you know, one of the things will be that one cause of suffering among parents is that they have the idea of what their kids of course should do. So they know their kid. Let's say you have a kid that has a talent in art in they're 5 years old and you're putting up their pieces of art in your house saying, "Oh my god, it's a future Picasso here. I have this is a, my son can draw this thing. It's amazing." And you know and 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 you and you think he's so unique unless you go to like 20 other houses of people that age and their their kids are their kids are also Picasso. But it's sort of like and you have this idea that your kid now, you have an add-on, you have this lovely drawing your kid did, which you kind of think is nice, and then you start to add on to it, like, wow, I wonder how good this is. And then it's like, wow, if he keep, he should go to art summer camp. And then it comes to summer, he doesn't want to go to art summer camp. And the parent starts to get upset, and then the parent's upset with the kid, and then the kid gets upset with the parent feels pushed around and next thing you know you know the, the parent is like i want my child to become an artist and it and it takes on a force that's amazing like the force of i mean even among very reasonable people right and and next thing you know you're in a family hell where the parent is breathing down the kid's neck um if you want to ever read a great book about the hell of this kind of thing and maybe you've read it or things like it uh, remember reading the uh, autobiography, or was it biography? I think it was autobiography of um, Andre Agass- Agassi, the uh, tennis player, whose father breathed down his neck from the time he was three years old, and he just hated his father and he hated tennis. Somehow went on, and he was such a good player; he played well anyway. Um, okay, let me go on. I'm, what I did was I, I have some notes scribbled. I just want to look at and see where I've gotten. Um, okay. I want to say a little about how to do it, how to do um, observing, and you know, those of you who uh, have studied or taken a class in DBT, or you have taught it yourself, and you're a trainer in it, you know, these, this is this is it. I mean, so if you think that'll be boring, um, you should, uh, you know, feel free to go make your turkey for tomorrow. Uh, If you aren't already, but um, I do want to say a few things because I'm assuming, I mean, this is intended for people to listen to sometime who maybe don't know those skills that way. And plus, I have my own way of thinking about them probably and teaching them. And plus, if I get enough time, I have a song uh, that I was going to sing to you guys um, just because I like to do that, uh, make songs out of these kind of things. So, um, all right. The, the steps really of what you need to do for observing is that um, first of all the first step and it's kind of like the most important skill of coping with difficult realities uh, it's like inescapably important skill and then there's lots of other skills but is to acknowledge that in fact um, you are in a difficult spot um, that you, you know that that you are uh uh caught up in uh my child needs to be picasso hell or these other parents are terrible hell or uh this experience is going to kill me hell uh which it which it may or may not one never knows uh, about most experiences um whatever it is you ha- you realize i'm in this uh kind of hell and and then you try to bring to mind what you're actually noticing like what do you what what are you seeing like let's say you go to Thanksgiving dinner somewhere tomorrow and there's a cousin or a relative or an aunt uncle you haven't seen for a long time and you have some negative memories about them they're a little bit hazy and you really don't want to see them and you and you sit down opposite them and therefore the person you're sitting opposite is actually the person in your mind the person in your history, the person that you don't want to see because you have some kind of memory, either distinct or not so distinct, of things that happened with that person. And in fact, it might have been very bad stuff or it might not have been as bad, but somehow that's what it is. And then the question is, can you notice and say to yourself, oh my God, I am terrified of seeing this person and I can't even quite remember why. And therefore, when you see them, you actually almost never see them. Uh, Because you might actually, if you just sat there and looked at them across the table, you might say, "Oh, oh, that's Aunt Bill." (laughs) Bill, (laughs) trans, my trans uh, aunt Bill, Um, Billy, and uh, so I have to laugh to myself because I can't hear any of you if you did laugh (laughs) at the mistake. But um, uh, you you look and and then you say, you know, let me take a look. You know what? Let me see if I can drop my assumptions for a moment or at least just put them over here and let me see what she or he is like now. And then you actually observe. Uh, And so it's like the observing is first acknowledging that there's trouble, that you're in some kind of hell. And then it's actually looking around at what the hell is that you're in and noticing the actual descriptive characteristics of it. That doesn't mean that the past didn't happen it doesn't mean that in fact this person might have really been mean to you or bad to you in which case you want to know that um, but it does mean you kind of get clearer you bring your mind into reality rather than just running away in your mind um, gosh I, I just a uh, quick story I went to see somebody in prison it was a, a woman in a prison near here in Massachusetts and it was in my role as the medical director of the Department of Mental Health in Western Massachusetts and she was a, a patient under our care and I wanted to interview her and when I interviewed her I had to sit she, they put her in a in an isolation room with a very heavy door locked, and I couldn't go in there because she tended to attack people uh, that were within reach so they had me interview her from sitting outside and it seemed ridiculous even, but there were like two guards standing near me while I'm interviewing her. And I was interviewing her through a slot that's like the kind of slot you have when you, when the, in the old days, it was, for some people it may still be true, where you, your mail would be dropped through a slot in your front door. It's like about a foot wide and about an inch high. So there's this slot, and I'm looking at her eyes, and she's looking at my eyes. And i'm asking her how she's doing and she said it's terrible i can't stand it in here it's just terrible could you get me out and oh my god if eyes if the human eye could just get what it wanted i mean she was so communicative it's like i thought oh my god i should go talk to the guards and get her out but of course i knew that was nuts i had no idea of what the story was of why she was in there at that point yet and so I said, it just sounds terrible. And she said, it's terrible. I can't stand it. And she said, can't you do something about it? I said, you know, I don't think I can change. I mean, this is a system that I'm not really part of. And so I, I can't really do that. But I do want to hear what's going on in there. She said, well, it's no point because it's just terrible. And I said, well, what are you doing with your mind? She said, what do you mean what am I doing? I said, well, describe to me the what it's like in there because I'm not there. She said, what am I supposed to say? It's like four walls. They're ugly. I said, okay, are they, is, every, is the whole thing ugly? I mean, if you look carefully, is there any evidence of people being there before, of any writing, of, uh, of just any? What do you think? Can, can you just sort of look around? Why would I do that? That's so stupid. I just need to get out of here. I said, you know, but you can't right now. And if you can't get out of here right now, maybe you could just observe what's going on in there and maybe you can sort of it might be that one of the reasons that you're not getting out of there is that you keep trying to get out of there and I did know a little bit about her that she was always trying to escape things and I didn't know if this was true, but was certainly was trying hard with me. And I said, maybe if to weren't kind of hard to get out, you might even get out too. Much. I mean, so maybe you can just look around and tell me you more know, about I'll what you're You know, you walk around yeah, there if you want and then come back here and tell me. And, you know, I just tried to get her mind to be occupied with reality of where she was. Um, hoping that it would help her bring her emotions down, rather than repeatedly reveal them, and frankly, it helped a bit. It helped a bit. Um, now, if what's happening is really too painful to ask somebody to be mindful of or to observe, you might have to notice that and find that you know what, maybe this isn't the moment for this person to observe certain things like some people are in such severe pain i, I had about last year of severe emotional pain when i had a herniated disc and i was standing at home it was so so painful that if somebody said oh be mindful of your pain observe the pain that would have been crazy actually i would have if i didn't have to stand completely still and just be suffering. I would have hit somebody if they said that, I think. No, you want to get your mind off of that degree of pain. You want to move away from it. So sometimes you don't want to observe the pain that you're in or the terrible situation you're in. You really have to sort of look away and bring your mind to observe something else. Um, you might even need to get out of where you are. I had a patient once that called me and she had a, uh, she, she didn't have a psychotic disorder, but she was in terribly uh, intense emotional pain and she was in her apartment and her experience was that her apartment walls were collapsing on her and she was terrified and she didn't know what to do and she was calling me for help and for coaching. And uh, when we considered various alternatives, it turned out the best one was when I said you know you don't live too far from Barnes and Noble bookstore and you always see say you like it there maybe you just need to get your brain looking at something else rather than those walls right now Um, you know and so why don't you take a walk to Barnes and Noble and just sort of do what you do there read look at things look at uh, you know maybe getting something sort of soothing to drink um but whatever you like to do there and she did and that did help it helped her uh get out of that uh, moment of hell uh within her larger larger hell um other things about observing and by the way i'm going to come back to finishing this up next week and then link it to the other skills we teach in uh, mindfulness of what what to do when you're in hell so I I haven't gotten as far as I hoped I would about teaching how to do it in this one, but I'll just say a few more things about that, and then we'll be picking up next time. When you're observing, there's a couple of different ways in DBT that we teach. One is you use your you focus your mind on something to observe, like the rainwater coming down, Uh, like the walls in the prison. Uh, like the reality of the relative that's sitting across from you the reality of my face And and actually how I might feel towards this person rather than just what they have in their mind about how I feel And that's all f- sort of focused and a lot of ways we practice in DBT is focus and you focus on the breath and When you focus on the breath, it's not the concept of the breath. It's the uh, sensations that are part of the breath and you just notice those sensations and that's good because they're always there right so um, uh, that's focusing the mind and we'll talk probably more next time about some of some of the how how to best use that in different versions of hell and then this the, the other one is the opening the mind not focusing the mind. Focusing the mind is you've got some object or some activity or something, some sensation that you are focusing on and you're bringing all of your 100% attention to just observing that. Observing it, not naming it, not describing it, not reacting to it, not acting upon it, not judging it, not interpreting it. Just notice. Just notice it, whatever it is, again and again. It's like broken record in your head, like okay yeah that and then you find your mind gets pulled away into some story or some meanderings and then you catch it and you come back again and again and there's something stabilizing if you do that over and over again about some aspect of reality that ideally is maybe neutral rather than either a very negative or very positive opening the mind is where you just let yourself kind of hold steady and notice whatever passes through your mind And you'll notice thoughts. And if you follow them, there's a never ending, never ending train of thoughts and a never ending sequence of emotions. And with that, and with just four minutes left, I'm going to sing you a song about how emotions never end. So here it is to the tune of the city of New Orleans by Arlo Guthrie. Rafting on the river in the springtime, snow is melting, water's running high, rapids disappearing in the darkness, in the depths, every rafter's hoping not to die, each day's just a river run from puttin' in to getting done, feelings just like waters rise and fall. Sometimes they intensify, they make us scream, they make us cry, and they take us on the greatest rides of all. Good morning, anger on the river. You crash us into boulders everywhere. You give us all a thrill just before we take a spill. And then you shame us all, you just don't care. Wisdom is to know the ways of water. To notice when it's friend and when it's foe To always keep our heads above the surface To ride the waves but sometimes let them go But when we're in the water's grip We can't let go cause the raft could flip We settle in and hang on for the ride It's strange to say but often true That doing nothing is the thing to do Rather than paddling against the tide Hello, contentment on the river. It's nice to drift and look back where we've been. Your lazy pace allows us to recover and get ready for the turbulence again. Water and emotions just keep moving. Whether slow or fast, waves happen all the time. If we use our paddles with wisdom and with skill, By the end, we might just feel sublime. Doesn't mean we're always dry. It doesn't mean we never cry. Water and emotions cut both ways. But observing rapids mindfully, using skills can set us free and give us lots of satisfying days. Good evening, darkness on the river. It's time for us to end another run. You have brought us chills and thrills, now sadness, and now we rest before another run. All right, look, I hope you enjoyed that. It's really about how emotions are just always going. You can always tune in and observe them. And I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving wherever you are, whatever you're doing, Uh, or if you listen to this later, obviously, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And uh, thanks for listening. And if anybody wants to email any feedback to me of any kind, including suggestions, uh, it's, uh, you could go to my website, charlieswenson.com, where this will be posted with the other podcasts within the coming days. Um, but also you could send me an email at c.robert.swenson at gmail.com, and I would love to hear from you. So take care, everyone. Uh, good night. Thank you, Charlie.